preceding teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Last Wednesday, I turned years old and... uh, all right, I turned 48. So, yeah, I know. Amazing how young and good looking I still am, huh? <laughs> you know, my wife recently told me I was going through midlife crisis. I told her, you're crazy. As I, you know, I hopped into my new red Ferrari convertible <laughs> on my way to the gym. Um, working on the comb over, but uh, fewer hairs to work with. Uh, but I'm kidding, but I did hear that you know that you're going through midlife crisis when the, you realize that the ages of your children are about the same ages of your clothes. And so, uh, yeah, think about that a minute. Um, <laughs> though some of my clothes are indeed as old as my children, uh, by God's grace, I don't think I am enduring a midlife crisis at this point. But there have been those times in my life that I have experienced what one pastor called a mid-crisis life. That's just the the idea of going through a personal struggle, a trial, a difficulty, having questions because of what is happening around you. And indeed, the prophet Habakkuk was having a mid-crisis life of sorts. We've been reading about that the last couple of weeks where he was wrestling with this issue of evil happening in God's world and, and God allowing it to continue. And he had these questions, and he became even more concerned when he found out from God that God was going to use a nation more evil than Judah to bring about consequences upon the people of Judah. And so Habakkuk, he wasn't shy about expressing his questions, his concerns. He wondered out loud about that. And so last week we got to the Lord's response. We looked at the first few verses in chapter 2 where God responded to Habakkuk's dilemma. In fact, let me read those verses that we covered last week by way of reminder. Habakkuk 2.2, he says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision, inscribe it on tablets, and the one who re- that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come, it will not delay. But as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. That's where we stopped last week. And if you remember from those initial verses in God's response to Habakkuk, we looked at three principles that we need to consider when we're confronted with the problem of evil in God's world. And the first principle was seen in verse 2. It was to look to God's word. As God there told Habakkuk, record, inscribe on tablets what I'm about to tell you. That, that's a reminder to us that God has given in his word all that we need in the answer questions that we have in life. He has given us all the answers. So we need to look to his word. The second principle we saw in verse 3, and that was to be patient with God's timing. God will respond But when and and how he responds are up to him. And so we need to wait patiently. And finally, the third principle we saw was in verse 4 last week, which was to live by faith. That is, the righteous shall live by faith. And as God began this response to Habakkuk 
Remember verses 4 and 5, he presented these two kinds of people in the world. The, the one he presented was the proud who live for themselves, and then the other was the righteous who live for God. Within this context, we understood the proud one, the haughty one, to be a reference to the people of Babylon, the Chaldeans. God had made reference to them earlier in chapter 1. They were the nation that he was going to raise up to bring consequences upon Judah. But these Chaldeans, they were a cruel and violent people. They used God's power that he gave them to oppress and to brutalize and to exploit. Again, that's what perplexed Habakkuk. He asked in 113, why are you silent when the wicked, and he's referring to the Chaldeans, why are you silent when they swallow up those more righteous than they? Or in 117, Habakkuk asked, will they, again the Chaldeans, will they continually slay nations without sparing? And again, as we've been talking about, these were the concerns that were on his heart. And again, these questions are relevant to us as well, for we only need to look to the Middle East to wonder about such things. We need only to look within our own land and our own government and what many sanction and encourage and endorse in our place, in our country, to wonder such things. We need only to look at what our many brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering terrible persecution for their trust in our Savior. We only need to look at them to wonder the same kinds of things that Habakkuk wondered. And for some of us, we only need to look upon the evil that's happened in our own lives to wonder such things. Where is God in all of this? Does He see these things? Is He going to do anything about it? Is there any hope for the oppressed? Well, this morning we're going to look at the rest of what God said to Habakkuk in chapter 2. So if you could please stand with me in honor of God's word, I'm going to read from verse 6 to the end of the chapter, Habakkuk chapter 2. God says here, Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his, for how long? And makes himself rich with loans. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them because you have looted many nations. All the remainder of the peoples will loot you because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You've devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples. So you're sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it within from its framework. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for, for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. The devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all its inhabitants. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher? 
Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, give us understanding of these words so that we would know you more, so that we would love Christ more, so that we would be moved to honor and exalt him in our lives. Pray these things in his name. Amen. Thanks. You may be seated. Okay, so uh, what is the theme here? Something we've seen once, once or twice before in the prophets, haven't we? It's clearly the theme of judgment, right? He's speaking here, declaring judgment in the series of woes. In fact, there are five woes that are given here. And that word woe is a word we've seen before, right? It's a, a word. It's not like, whoa, man, that's not what he's talking about. Right? It, it originally was a funeral lament. It was something that you would declare in mourning for someone who had died. But as we look at in the Old Testament, the more predominant usage of the word is a, is a pronouncement of judgment. It's an announcement of doom. It, it expresses the idea that, hey, you need to be preparing for your own funeral, for you are as good as dead. That is the tone of these woes. And, and this series of five woes is presented here by God, but he, but he does it in a poetic fashion as if they were coming from those to whom the Babylonians had been impressed by, up, oppressed by. We see that in the beginning of verse 6 when God says, Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him? And the these there, he's referring to all nations and all peoples as he mentions at the end of verse 5. The him there, H-I-M, that he mentions in verse 6 is speaking of the haughty one. Again, a reference to the Chaldeans in the context of Habakkuk. And so God here poetically expresses this, this picture, this description of, of the nations, the peoples who have been oppressed, who have been abused, and how they are now rising up to make a taunt song, a, a riddle, a ridicule, a proverb against the people of the, of the Babylonians. It's kind of this picture, you know, the, of the school bully who's been picking on kids for so long, and that one day when all the kids are surrounding him, mocking him, that's kind of the idea that's being expressed here in Habakkuk. And this taunt song, it begins in the middle of verse 6, and it's structured poetically here, as I've already mentioned. There are five different stanzas, five different woes, each stanza with three verses each in it. There's a, there's a symmetry to what's done here, and often in prophecy it is uh, written in the form of poetry, and so we would expect that. And what I want to do this morning in looking at this passage, I mean, there's a lot of of Old Testament sounding words and phrases here, right? A lot of Old Testament sounding pictures. What I want to do is look at the passage. We'll look at each wool briefly just to get an idea of what each of them is talking about. And then I want to step back and make some general observations of these verses as a whole. And then finally talk about what is God saying here in response to or in regards to Habakkuk's concerns? How is what God says here an answer to his dilemma? And so with that, let's first take a brief look at each of the five woes. The first woe is given in verses 6 through 8, and it addresses the greed and extortion by the Babylonians. Verse 6, the taunters say, Woe to him who increases what is not his and makes himself rich with loans or with pledges. The idea here is, is these Babylonians, they were taking things that were not theirs. They were going into these nations and taking by force materials, resources, people. They took great pride in their plundering of the nations. In fact, um, there's some 
ancient uh, extant writings called the Babylonian Chronicles. These are annals of the kings of Babylon that they would write of various things over the years. And often you would see in these chronicles the exploits of their conquerings, of, of going into a nation and what they would conquer. And often they would talk about what they took. They seemed to take great pride. So they'd mention how much livestock and, and how much gold and silver, how many people were taken captive. Those were often the focus in these annals. But but God did not view what they took as theirs. They were taking from somebody else. And he uses terminology here like that of a loan, that they were only borrowing what they had taken and what they had taken would soon be required of them. In fact, in verse 7, it says there that there's going to be a call on their loan. Those days, if you didn't have money to pay your debt, what would happen to you? You'd be enslaved, right? And so God says here, those whom you have plundered Babylon, you would be plundered yourselves. Notice in verse 7, he indicates that their debt would be called upon suddenly. They get a knock at the door in the night, calling on their loans. And that's exactly what happened to Babylon. Remember Daniel 5, it describes the, the wine feast that was going on with Belshazzar. And that night, with the handwriting on the wall, that very night is when the Medes and the Persians came into the city of Babylon, a city that nobody thought could be conquered. And in one night, they were taken down. In fact, historians have identified the exact date of that event, October 13th, 539 B.C. Mark it on your calendars if you want. But in just that one night, the Persians came in, swept through the city, and as a result, the empire fell quickly. Again, suddenly, their loan was called upon. We find the second one, verses 9 to 11, where verse 9 says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Now, house can mean the physical structure, a home, but often also means a dynasty or an empire. Like uh, the phrase, the house of David. It's often used that way. And here, I think that's how it's being used here. And this second woe is talking about something that they're building on something that was in the first woe. This idea of not only did they extort and plunder, but they did it so that they could acquire materials to build their own houses, to build their own empire. And he says there to notice in verse um, six, or nine there, excuse me, he says to put his nest on high. That's this picture of building fortresses, you know, like uh, eagles, birds of prey. They have their nests in the cliff and their they're nests you can't get to. They're well protected. That's the picture here. He's saying, you're taking all this stuff from these other nations to build these fortified castles and cities thinking that you are protected. The wealth and materials that the Babylonians had absconded from the nations uh, they used to build their cities. In fact, there's a lot of descriptions about Babylon itself. It had these massive double walls surrounding the city with a moat around that even the palace was said that there was a wall around it over a hundred feet thick the second line again verse nine describes how their efforts to do this in order to protect themselves but but god says in verse 11 that through the taunters the very stones within the walls that they had taken the very beams within the rafters that they had taken will cry out against babylon for their sins the very structures that they had built for protection would become monuments to their own condemnation the third woe in verses 12 to 14 continues on from the second as the taunters say, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Or that word can be translated a crime, injustice, evil. Bloodshed here is a common Hebrew idiom. Uh, literally, it's bloods. 
And it's the idea of communicating a, a brutal violence or most often murder. Taking of another's life. And this woe here that he's talking about, building a city on bloodshed, he's talking about a common practice among empires in the ancient Near East where they would conscript slaves in order to build their cities. You know why they did that? Cheap labor? Partly, but mostly because it was dangerous labor. That they would be building these massive structures and moving these huge stones and often those moving them would slip and fall and the stones would run over the top of them. Or they'd be standing on these great structures as they're building and there wasn't a lot of scaffolding and safety there at that time. They'd fall to their deaths often. And so people would be taken in, these captives that they had taken in from these other nations, they would use them to build their monuments, build their cities. So God said, you're not pleased with that. And so you picture Nebuchadnezzar, right? He often liked to go and survey his property, survey the things that he had built. And we see that in Daniel chapter 4. He had built these large, impressive palaces, these hanging gardens, enormous city walls. And what he was commending, God here is denouncing. What Nebuchadnezzar saw as beautiful, God saw human blood and corpses. Where Nebuchadnezzar saw achievement, God saw oppression. Where Nebuchadnezzar saw industry, God saw exploitation. So God says in verse 13, Babylon, you've plundered the nations, you've stolen materials to build your mighty fortresses. And then verse 13, he says this. I'm going to use the net translation. I think it expresses it well. Their efforts will go up in smoke. Their exhausting work will be for nothing. Babylon, you're making all this effort to build your kingdom. You're building it upon the blood of others. But it's all in vain. It's all for naught. It will blow away. The fourth woe is given in verses 15 to 17. And it describes the shame and the exploitation that the people of Babylon subjected those who they were taking captive. Verse 15 says, Woe to you who make your neighbors drink so as to look on their nakedness. A pretty graphic picture here. God describing someone who is making another person drunk in order to take advantage of them. Indeed, the Babylonians were known for this kind of behavior. They were known for their raping and pillaging, for marching captives in front of them without a strip of clothing on them in order to shame and humiliate them. So because of their cruelty, verse 16 says, You, Babylon, you will experience the same shame, the same degradation, the same dishonor that you have perpetrated upon others. You will be made drunk and then exposed. Verse 17 says that the devastation that they have brought upon natural resources and animals, the violence that they have perpetrated on other human beings, the corruption of the lands that they have conquered, all of this would happen to them. There's the picture here that they had been forcing their cups of exploitation and violence and oppression on others. And now God would force his own cup of wrath down their throats. It's pretty direct language. And then we come upon the fifth woe. The pattern so far has been pretty consistent with these woes. Each woe begins with the word woe. And then a judgment is proclaimed the details of that woe. But here, as we look at the fifth woe, we notice something different. First, notice the word woe does not occur at the beginning. It's not at the beginning of verse 18. It doesn't happen until the next verse. Another difference with this fifth woe is that there's no declaration of judgment, as in the other woes. And thirdly, there's a difference in that the theme of this woe is different than the first four. 
The first four center around their violence and oppression, but this fifth woe focuses on something else, right? What's the focus in this fifth woe? On their false idols, on their idolatry, right? So there are several differences here. And my question is why? There's this pattern that he establishes, and then we have this fifth woe that is very much different. Why is that? Was that intentional? What's the point? What's the message there? Well, before answering that, let's talk about the specifics of this woe, this fifth woe. It was the woe of idolatry. And this practice was common in the ancient Near East, right? Every people, every culture, every nation, they had made a practice of worshiping idols. In fact, it was so pervasive that the people of Judah and the people of Israel got sucked into it too, right? Well, in this fifth woe, God highlights idolatry and he highlights one aspect of it what's the tone here how's god speaking here in these words verses 18 and 19 right he's focusing on the absolute stupidity of worshiping idols right he said why why would you trust in or or talk to or or listen to or or hope in a chunk of stone a piece of wood some precious metals take the metals off that thing go use them for something that's worthwhile why are you praying to these things doesn't talk it doesn't move it it doesn't listen it doesn't breathe it's not alive it's worthless is his point in fact that phrase at the end of verse 18 the speechless idols it's literally the two words elilim elmim and that both those words together have this idea of a mute vanity of something that is a non-entity in fact uh, it sounds a lot like there's a general word for god in hebrew el el It sounds like that. I think there's a play on words happening here to emphasize these are non-gods. They're worthless gods. They're nothing gods. They're non-entities. Isaiah made a similar point as he described the Babylonians' worship of their gods. Bel and Nebo were the primary Babylonian gods. And Isaiah said in Isaiah 46, 7, Those who lavish gold from purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith. And he makes it into a god. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It doesn't move from its place. Though when they cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Now, why is that? They're gods, aren't they? Why can't they move themselves around? Why can't they deliver from distress? Because it's a dumb rock. That's why. Duh, right? That's God's point. It's a lifeless piece of carved wood. It can't even take care of itself. It can't even move itself anywhere. Why would someone worship these things? And yet, indeed, they were worshipped. They were trusted. They were hoped in. So God condemns them for that. So back to my original question. Why the difference here in this fifth woe? How does it relate to the other four? I'll get to that in a minute. I want to keep you at least a little longer, right? But before I get there, I want to make some general observations about these woes. Except for the fifth woe, the, the first four, they again, they center on the same theme. The Babylonians' violence against others. Their oppression, their exploitation, their abuse. And God was condemning them. They were using other people, using their things for their own selfish gain. And what made it worse was that the power... Uh, the wisdom, the military skill, the, the political um, uh, skill and wisdom, those things were given to them by God. Remember, he was raising them up to be used by the Lord as an instrument 
of correction for his people and for other nations. And they used the things God had given them and raising them up. They used them to take advantage and harm and abuse others. And while God did use Babylon for his own purposes, the means in which they carried out those purposes were not sanctioned by God. He never approves of evil. He never is okay with sin. In fact, God hates sin and he hated their wicked cruelty. And so God says in the form of this taunt song through the victimized, he says, enough. Woe to you, Babylon. You're a dead man. Now, God could have made that point a little more succinctly, right? Did he need to use 15 verses to make it? Couldn't he not just in a verse or two made the same exact point? You've done wrong. I'm going to judge you. It's over. But instead, we have these five woes, this woe after woe, each one building upon the previous one. And what's his point in that? What is he trying to emphasize? What is he trying to draw attention to of the Babylonians and of any who would oppose God? My judgment is certain. He's saying my justice will prevail. He's emphatically stating, let there be no doubt that all sin will be accounted for. And God said that back in verse 3, essentially, when he said this vision, this message of judgment against Babylon, he said it hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. It will certainly come. It will not delay. And so this declaration here of, of woe after woe after woe, it's like this, this hammer striking over and over again. God's saying, my judgment will come. I am just. My justice will prevail. And it will happen to you, Babylon. You will pay for your sin. And I know God's justice here. This is not a new attribute, right? This is the first time you've heard that God is just. I think most of it know that God will judge sin. Is this a new concept? No, we, we see that often in Scripture. We've heard it before. But I think at times we can be tempted to doubt it. Especially when we see so much evil and injustice and wrong happening in our world and even in our own lives. Well, maybe God isn't just. Now, we might not say that out loud. But I think we can be tempted to think that. And God is saying here through Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter two, he's reminding us, brothers and sisters, that God will balance the scales. Hell is the great equalizer. No one can escape from it without Jesus. And if a person doesn't repent of his or her sin, then they will drink that same cup of wrath that was poured down the throats of the Babylonians. If you're a person who has not confessed your sin to Christ, confessed it, asked for forgiveness, you need to heed this warning very carefully. Don't just think of it, oh, this is some ancient book, some, some think a couple thousand years ago, a culture I don't know a whole lot about. That's just some harsh words God was talking to them about. It doesn't have anything to do with me. Oh, yes, it does. Yes, it does. He's not just speaking to Babylon here. He's also speaking to you. God's made it crystal clear in his word. Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is death. Or John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. Why? Because the wrath of God abides on him. It's not a popular thought, but it is a true thought. It is a warning to all of us to understand that life isn't a game. God does not treat sin lightly. 
He was not ignoring those deeds of the Babylonians. He doesn't ignore our sin. He will judge it. And again, he will judge you for your sin unless you bring it to the foot of the cross and ask Christ to forgive you. And he take it upon himself and pay the penalty that you and I deserve. There's a second observation we can make from these verses, not only that God is just, but also we see a principle that's repeated several times. It's related to God's justice. Notice verse 7. Babylon had plundered, and now they would become plunder. Verse 8. Babylon had looted many nations, now they would be looted. Verse 16. Babylon had exposed others and shamed and humiliated them, now they will be exposed and shamed. What's the principle? You guys see it? What a man sows, this he will also reap, right? God said to Edom in Obadiah 15, As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Or Proverbs 131 says, Of those who reject wisdom, they will eat of the fruit of their own way and have their fill of their own devices. Or Proverbs 26, 27. That's a great picture here. He who digs a pit will fall into it. And he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. You know what he's saying there? If you if you dig a pit for somebody else to fall into, guess what's going to happen? You're going to find yourself in that pit. You roll a stone up the hill to crush somebody else, guess what? We see that so clearly. Uh, remember the book of Esther, right? Haman built those gallows to hang his enemy Mordecai on, and what happened? He was hung upon them. Or Ahab. He had so unjustly taken the field of Naboth and he and his sons were killed. Naboth and his sons were killed so he could have that vineyard. Turns out Ahab's very own son was buried in that same field as judgment. Or King David. Remember what happened to his family? All the violence and murder and immorality that took place within his own children. It's the same thing he did in devastating Uriah's family. Old Testament scholar Bo Heflin, I think, put it well when he said, evil has within itself the seed of its own destruction. Evil has within itself the seed of its own destruction. God has designed his world in such a way that sin has its consequences. And this is true not only for Babylon. This is true not only being emphasized here towards them. This is true for anybody, right? It's true for us as well, isn't it? What did, was it that Paul said in Galatians 6, 7? God is not mocked. Don't be deceived. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. He went on to say, For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. Again, the message is clear. You reap what you sow. I want you to think about that. Again, this isn't a new concept, right? For most of us. I think... We've experienced it in our own life. We've seen it in others' lives. And the scripture has been very clear on it. Often talks about it. Not a new concept. But I want you to think carefully about this for a minute. Evaluate what you did this week. Any ongoing sin in your life? Do you think nothing will come of that? God's turning the other way? He's too kind to us to not bring consequences. As followers of Christ, we must strive to walk by His Spirit so that we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16, such an important verse. Walk by His Spirit. You won't give in 
to those things. You won't pursue the desires of the flesh, but will reap the fruit of the spirit. And so we must be focused upon Christ. Our hearts must be focused in dwelling on his word. Our minds must be fixed on him. Our, our efforts must be to dwell with his people, spend time in fellowship with his people. That is how you walk by the spirit so that his fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness will be evident in your life. There's a third observation we can make from Habakkuk. It's one that takes us back to that last woe. Remember, it asked you about that, right? Like, why is this woe structured differently than any others? Do you have any ideas about that? Any thoughts? I think it's different for this reason. Because it is intended to show us why the Babylonians sinned. Those first four woes articulate the things that they had done wrong and what God would do in response to that. And this fifth woe is, I think, a clear declaration of why they did those things. Because what is it that leads somebody down the path of greed or exploitation or violence or using people, injustice, harm? What is it that moves somebody down the path of mistreating others, of discontentment, of empire building? What takes one down these roads? Trusting in something else rather than God. And that's what is being pointed out here in Habakkuk 2. That is the ultimate folly, right? Psalm 115, we find a description of the folly of idolatry that's similar to what God was saying here in Habakkuk 2. The psalmist there says in Psalm 115, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. These verses in Psalm 115, they describe the real dumb and dumber. Right? The dumb being the idol. The dumber being the one worshiping the idol. And you know... We laugh and we we would mock these guys. You know, if we saw somebody bowing down and worshiping a piece of wood, we may mock them or or think that is silly or foolish or stupid to to bow down to an object, to put your trust in in a piece of wood, to have your hope in some precious metal, to be praying to a statue of stone. We may ridicule them for for trusting in these worthless and lifeless objects. But is trusting in a A green piece of paper with a dead president on it, any different? Is is trusting in some mind-altering substance any different? Is trusting in or or lusting after an image on a screen, is that any different than bowing down to a piece of wood? Is holding on to bitterness any different? Is, is longing for and demanding the approval of others any different? Is toiling for success while you sacrifice your family or your morals? Is that any different than worshiping a stone? Is craving happiness in the arms of someone who is not your spouse any different? Is depending on your own abilities rather than Christ really any different? And trusting in a lifeless, inanimate object. Beloved, trusting in or seeking contentment in any of these things, and there are so many more, it is just as foolish as bowing down to this microphone. 
is just as silly. It's just as dumb. This microphone can't do anything. Might project my voice sometimes. We've been having trouble first hour with it, but it can't do anything, right? This podium can't do anything. And neither can anything else in life ultimately satisfy you except for the Lord Jesus Christ. And let this be a reminder to us, these, these words in Habakkuk chapter 2 that describe why the Babylonians were going down these paths of sin, violence. They did so because their allegiance, their joy, their affections were not in the Lord. Let it be a reminder to us that our allegiance and affection need to be directed to Jesus Christ and Him alone. Amen? Okay, we've looked at each of the five woes just in general made some observations, three observations of these woes. But, but there's one more point about these verses that I want us to look at. Perhaps, probably the more, most critical one. For what we have in these verses, it's more than just a message about sowing and reaping. These verses are more than just about the wicked receiving justice. The passage is more than a guide on morality. It's telling us more than just how not to treat other people. Indeed, those are True, indeed, those are legitimate applications of this passage, but they're not the primary one that, is, that God is driving at here. There's one message woven within these verses, one that is significant, the most significant, has significant implications regarding Habakkuk's dilemma. Because again, remember, that's what these verses are, a response to his questions, right? The dilemma that prompted God to speak and that message provides the foundation for what God said in Habakkuk 2.4, that the righteous shall live by faith. Take a look at verse 20. After describing the Elilim in verses 18 and 19, the, the vain idols, verse 20 then declares, but the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Literally, the word there is hush. Let all the earth hush, shh. Quite a contrast. <laughs> Verses 18 and 19, these lifeless, speechless, motionless, powerless, worthless idols. And then we're taken from those all the way up into the very throne room of God to see the exalted, all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, one true God seated on His throne. His holy temple here is a reference to the throne room of God. Psalm 11 verse 4 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And verse 20 is given here not just to assert that, that God is real and these idols are not, which is, of course, true. But the picture presented here of, of God, he's on his throne, all of creation is called to be quiet before him. This picture is a clear declaration of this very important truth about God. And that is that he is the sovereign judge over all the universe. This truth is echoed in Micah 1-2, which says, Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all it contains, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. See, Habakkuk 2.20 is really kind of the, the exclamation point of this passage where he's saying emphatically, God is judge, God is king, and it is His kingdom. He is the king who rules over history. He is the king who moves history. He is the king who rules history. And so his message to the Babylonians here, his message to the people of Judah, because remember, it was really inscribed for them. 
It's hard to say whether the Babylonians ever even heard these words or not. Perhaps they did. These are words, a message to Habakkuk. It's a message to us. And God is saying in all this, I am seated on my throne. Nothing escapes my attention. I see it all. Not like these dumb, vain idols. They don't see a thing. I see everything. These idols have no power. I have all power. These idols can do nothing. Cannot help you. Cannot help themselves. But I can. These idols are worthless. And yes, Babylon, you've committed wicked deeds. Babylon, you have been risen up according to my sovereign plan and my purposes, but I will judge your sin. But know this, Babylon, know this, Habakkuk, know this, everyone. They're not the ones in control. I am. That's what verse 20 is saying. And these Babylonians, they're like so many before them, like so many after them. They've sought to make a name for themselves as they tried to build their mighty empire They endeavored to build their superior kingdom, but God is saying here they're just a blip on the screen. Babylonians, while you seek to build your little kingdom, know this, that it is actually my kingdom that will stand forever. That's the point he was making back in verse 14. In fact, I kind of skipped it there on purpose. If you go back there, verse 12, he was telling them, woe do you build a city with bloodshed. And then verse 13 He basically is saying it's worthless. It's going to come to nothing. It's like smoke. All your efforts is just vanity because verse 14, because of this, the earth will be filled, not with the kingdom of Babylon, not with the kingdom of Persia, Greece, Rome, America, no kingdom at all. Will the nation, will the world be built upon except this one? The earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord as water covers the sea. That is where history is directed. And you know, I don't think it's any coincidence that this message that we find here in Habakkuk, that we find it at this time, because again, consider the time period here. These words came not long before the first deportation of the people of Judah into Babylon. Not long after this, not long after Habakkuk heard these words, King Nebuchadnezzar brought in his military 605 BC and he took out a number of captives. And do you remember... There was one particular young man who was taken in that first deportation. He had a special diet. He was, uh, remember, he's a guy that was known for his integrity, a man of prayer. Lions did not really acquire a taste for him. You remember that guy? Daniel, right? Daniel lived in these days of Habakkuk. He was one of those taken. And do you remember what the theme of his book was? In fact, let's go over to Daniel a minute. I want to just remind you of this. Very important. It's exactly what God's talking about here in Habakkuk 2. You remember in Daniel chapter 2, right? The dream Nebuchadnezzar had. Big statue, right? Of course, right? Statue. You remember that dream? What was the head made of? Gold. And he had the silver chest, the bronze waist and thighs, the iron clay legs. You remember that? Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, couldn't figure it out. Said, hey, wise man, you tell me what the dream was and what it means that you're dead, right? Remember this story. And what, what did that dream represent? Do you recall? The head represented Babylon, right? The chest, Persia, Greece, Rome, right? It was a description of the coming empires, the coming kingdoms that would, would take place. And do you remember what happened to that statue at the end? Right? Big rock. 
crushes the statue, pulverizes it, but dust and it blows away in the wind. Verse 34 mentions that. Now, what was the purpose of this dream? Was it just to give Nebuchadnezzar a history lesson? Say, Neb, you need to know a little history here. Let me just tell you. Partly, but the reason was he wanted to show him the end of history, right? In fact, look at verse 44. Daniel tells him what this dream means. In those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar, you're building your kingdom. You're a pretty powerful king. You have a pretty powerful military. You're intimidating everyone around you. But it's only temporary. God's setting up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. Your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar, will be taken. And the one that takes you, they'll be taken. The one that takes them, they'll be taken. But God will never be taken. His kingdom will be established forever. It itself will endure forever. The point of God's sovereign rule is clear here, right? Go over to Daniel chapter 4. That's where a very well-known story about Nebuchadnezzar himself, and he was warned not to take glory in what he had done and his achievements, that God had given all these things to him, and he's out on his palace one day admiring all the things that he had built, right? He had built. And he's giving himself this nice award for his achievements Right. Remember, Daniel said, don't don't do that. Right. In the very moment that he's speaking those words. Remember, the king had this sudden urge to go on a on a grass only diet. Right. You thought Starbucks discovered wheatgrass. That was actually Nebuchadnezzar. Right. For several years until he came to realize or came to accept. He repented, I think, of his wrong thinking that. It was he who established all these things. But he realized, no, it was God himself. In fact, look at verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar came to recognize this very important truth, which again is the theme of this book. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Not mine, his. And all the inhabitants of the earth, he says, are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is among the most powerful declarations of God's sovereign rule spoken of anywhere in Scripture. And to think of who was actually speaking it. The guy that thought it was him at first. That he was the king. And he realized, no, it's not me. In fact, go over to Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7. Here Daniel tells of a vision that God had given him, again revealing the empires to come and In the midst of that vision, Daniel was shown the throne room of heaven. And he describes how he sees the Ancient of Days seated on his throne. We just sung about that a little earlier. And then Daniel says this in verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Who's that? And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus was called the Son of Man often while he was on earth. 
This is one of the primary reasons why. Because He is the object of the Ancient of Days giving the kingdom where He will rule forever. This is the point of Daniel's book. It's all aimed at this very thing. This is the point of Habakkuk chapter 2. This is the point really of Scripture where it is aiming at that God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, will bring in His kingdom and He will reign forever. That's where it's going. It's His kingdom. No others that will be over all. It is His kingdom that will endure. It is His kingdom that will not be overpowered. It is His kingdom which will be alone standing when all the dust settles. It's His kingdom. Jesus will reign forever. Just as Revelation 11.15 declares, when the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He will reign forever and ever. Amen to that. I can't wait for those words to be spoken aloud. For these words to echo through the corridors of heaven. And it is that event that we see in seed form in Habakkuk 2.14. When he says that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. 2 Corinthians 4.6 tells us the glory of God is seen in the face of Christ. And so in response to Habakkuk's struggles, as he's struggling with the evil around him, God tells him, Habakkuk, remember who is on the throne. Habakkuk, remember who is just, who is omnipotent, who is all-knowing. Remember who is moving history. Dwell on that, Habakkuk. Dwell on the fact that it is my glory that will fill the earth. That is how you will live by faith such an important truth. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of God's glory in the reign of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's going to happen. That is going to happen. He's proven it very clearly. When He died on the cross, He did not stay in the grave, did He? If He had, we're in trouble. Not only would our sins not be forgiven, but Jesus wasn't the one. That's why the resurrection is such a vital truth in Christianity, because it shows that is the one. He is the one. He's the one that came before the Ancient of Days and was given a kingdom. And His resurrection was the inauguration. He was made both Lord and Christ, Lord and King. And so we look in anticipation for His return. Just like Paul, I love what he said in Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. I love that. Eagerly waiting. Beloved, are you eagerly waiting? How often do you think about, really think about His coming? You know, I don't dwell enough on His return. Do you? When was the last time that you reminded yourself Jesus Christ is returning to reign forever. And they weren't just flowery words, but that you were speaking them from a heart that was eagerly waiting for that. Jesus Christ is coming back forever to reign as King. If you often find yourself discouraged or overwhelmed or anxious or fretting over your circumstances or 
caught up in some sin or distracted or investing your time in, in things that won't last or, or worked up about current events or waning in your evangelism or, or not serving in the body. If, if any of these are the case, then that is telling you one thing, that you're not thinking about Christ's return because that will motivate you to do those things, not only to give you hope, but also to trust. So, beloved, look to his coming. That is how you will live by faith when evil seems to be going on unchecked. That is how you will live by faith when you see the injustice and the violence all around you. That is how you will live by faith when you see wicked nations and governments and kingdoms rise up. That is how you will live by faith when suffering persecution. That is how you will live by faith when you're sinned against. That is how you will live by faith in the midst of trials and difficulties and suffering. To dwell on this one truth. And that's the point God is making to Habakkuk here. Dwell on Christ's return. That is how you will live by faith. That is such an important thing to remember. And that's where God guided Habakkuk. Remember Habakkuk. I am on the throne. My plan will take place. My glory will fill the earth. I love how hymn writer Isaac Watts so eloquently put these truths when he, when he wrote, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till wounds shall wax and wane no more. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this truth this reminder that you expressed to Habakkuk thank you Lord that you gave him a response that you showed mercy and care by addressing his concerns and by reminding him ultimately of your sovereign power and rule of your justice that what one sows one will reap that Lord nothing escapes your notice and that you are moving to establish your kingdom and that one day your son who died on the cross that those who repent and believe may be forgiven and who rose again to show that his payment was accepted we eagerly wait for him to return he he left in the clouds and he's coming back that way and lord move in us this week to to not get so distracted by the things that are going on around us that we lose sight of what we are here for, that we lose sight of where history is going, that, that we lose sight of our Savior. For in that we, Lord, can live for Him and we'll be motivated to live lives that honor Him and that, Lord, proclaim Him. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice on us on our behalf. Amen.